Welcome to Agile Engineering. A podcast covering subjects like DevOps, Agile, Development, Cloud, and more. Featuring Liam Gulliver, Pete Gallagher, Louise Paling, Misha Bell, and Jonathan Ralph. With Tom Hoyland. Welcome, everybody, to the Agile Engineering Podcast. Uh, this is episode nine, uh, and I am Liam Gulliver. And joining me on this episode is Jonathan Ralph. Hello. Pete Gallagher. How's it going? Misha Bell. Guten Tag. And Louise Paling. Hello. Uh, and on this occasion, joining us to talk about the theory of constraints is Tom Hoyland from Sky Betting and Gaming. Hey there, Liam. How are you doing? Good, thank you. I guess let's get right into it. Tom, do you want to start with just exactly what the theory of constraints is? So the theory of constraints is it's a body of work, really, that's been created by a chap known as Alaya Goldratt, and it's appeared in a number of different books. The goal, you'll probably have heard of it, uh, been used quite a lot in the Phoenix project, and obviously the follow-up to that, the Unicorn project. And it's a really good way to look at systems of work, find out where bottlenecks exist, where helpful constraints exist, and then where enabling constraints exist, and how you can use those to great effect to accelerate delivery and build a better delivery pipeline and a better team. You say in terms of building a better team, how do you see that impacting teams in a, I want to say in a more real fashion, but I'm not quite sure that's exactly the wording I mean. What kind of things do you see the, that being a problem for? What do you think the benefit is to a team? I think really high-performing agile teams, whether they call themselves platform teams, feature teams, DevOps teams, uh, or any other name that they, they apply to themselves. I think if teams are conscious of where their bottlenecks are, where they can see throttling taking place, they can see work stacking up before the site of the constraint, then they can choose to do something about it. They can move people around, they can become more T-shaped, they can become more resilient as a team. And by moving people to the site of that constraint, you can start to relax it and you can start to ease it. And that leads to all sorts of great things. It leads to happier and more content teams, more leveled work. So you don't see huge amounts of utilization in one place and then a low amount of utilization in another. Uh, and ultimately it results in better business outcomes. So teams operating at their natural capacity and throughput as opposed to something that's artificially constrained or throttled. It's really about building a healthier team and respecting almost the speed limit at which teams can operate based on their language, the use, the technology that they're building on, but then also the environment that they're working in as well. Because some teams have got compliance and security related deadlines, some bits of work become more toxic more quickly than others. Uh, and so by paying attention to those constraints, teams can find a much more healthy way of working and ultimately be a lot happier, I would expect. And that's definitely what I've seen. Is it the case that a lot of this hinges off measuring things? How do you know whether this is working or not if you're not measuring the right things? Absolutely, Jonathan. I think measurement is absolutely key. And, you know, they always say that you measure what matters and the things that you measure end up mattering whether they're the right things or the wrong things. Now, one of the things that I'm really passionate about with the teams that I work with is being people-led, but then data-driven. So it's definitely people that inform how we change teams, how we evolve them. But really, data is at the heart of everything that we do. And if you've got that observability, not just of the tools and the technology that you've got, but the pipeline that you created, that's, that's not just technology, that's not just your continuous integration CI-CD pipeline. It's your people and your process. When you put all of those things together and you have observability of that, it's possible to really zoom in on the pinch points that exist. And these things pop up in your metrics, your monitoring, 
And if you're cognizant of those constraints, you are able to identify where they are. You can do some really amazing things to accelerate a team without throwing any more people at it. I guess the thing out of that is, you mentioned earlier that it, it's language is an important thing, but I guess you don't mean in terms of, of programming language or anything like that. You mean in terms of straight up vocabulary. Yeah, absolutely. I think language is probably one of the most interesting constraints that you can have within a team. You hear about folks like Jeff Gothelf and you hear about people like Dan Pink, the people that talk about how we build teams with intrinsic motivation. And we've all come across the book, Start With Why. But when you focus the language that a team is using on why, suddenly you start to remove those constraints. When we start to talk about what we're going to build, we're actually starting to narrow in the constraints very, very particularly towards what we're going to build. It effectively shuts down conversations. And that's actually okay, depending on where you are in your delivery life cycle. You may have incepted something, you may have designed something, and you're very much in the throes of getting that product out of the door through your pipeline. And so revisiting a conversation about why we're building this actually sometimes might not be the right thing to do. So we can tune the language that we're using and zoom in on things like what that effectively narrows and throttles the language and the thing that we're building. It zooms in on what we're after. When you take a step back, when we start to expand that out and relax that constraint, we can talk about things like how. That obviously gives us a lot more room for manoeuvre. It opens up more opportunities and then stepping one step back again, you can then focus on why. And that's why when we go into things like inception sessions and looking at what we're going to build, but more importantly, why we're going to build it, it's really important to pay attention to the, the language, the nouns, the verbs that we're using, because it can shut down a conversation or it can open it up and it's about a team being cognizant of that. Is that something that you'd also document as well? So if you've got distributed teams, as generally we all are at the moment for, for the most part, is that something you document so that everybody's got a clear definition or do you kind of give it like a bit of wiggle room for interpretation? I think it, it's really important, especially in the remote and distributed working world that we're in now, just to almost bring the implicit things out and make them explicit. So when we're setting up inception sessions, when we're working with teams, one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing is framing that conversation, stating, okay, we've gone through this ideation phase. We've gone through the discovery phase. We're now into determining what we're building and how we're going to build it. And that really frames the conversation. So we don't sometimes take an unhelpful step back, but then Sometimes you do find things as you're going through that delivery process, as you're incepting something, new things will come out of the woodwork and fundamentally change the way that you are going to build something. And it may totally unseat the reason for doing that thing in the first place. And I think really good teams, a good agile coach, good DevOps coaches are able to pick up on that drive towards that language, that, that move back from what and how and more to why, and then approaching those conversations in the right way. I suppose it's, it's a bit like the Andon cord, knowing when to pull that cord and say, actually, we've got a problem here. We need to revisit the fundamentals of why we're doing something. And there's no shame and no harm in doing that. I think some of the, the best teams that I've worked with haven't been afraid to even partway through a delivery, actually hold the hands up and say, this is no longer valid anymore. The business case no longer makes sense. Or actually one of the assumptions that we built this whole thing on, actually it's no longer valid and then be brave enough to pivot. That's what really great teams do and be able to pick up on that in the language that they use. So you say brave enough to pivot. What do you mean by that? It's about understanding why you're building something. When we choose why we're going to build something, we look at the business case for it. We look at what user impact, what user need we're trying to achieve. And if through our research, we find that that is not what we thought it was, even though we may have been building a bit early. And I've been in that situation in, in, in very large programs where we built something and actually the business case no longer makes sense. Really effective teams are not afraid to say, actually, this no longer makes sense to us. The user needs have changed and then go back to the drawing board, actually throw things away. And there's no shame in doing that. Really good teams are not afraid to cast away investments that are effectively burning a hole in their pockets and decaying even more as we continue to look at them. The value seems to plummet very, very quickly. 
So that sounds like the very definition of the uh, sunk cost fallacy. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really, yeah, a really good point to make, actually, because a lot of arrogance or, you know, or pride can often kind of get in the way of admitting that you're wrong. And it takes a really big person to kind of, to and a really big team as well, you know, to go, yeah, actually, this was a constraint. It, you know, it didn't, it didn't pan out the way we wanted to. Let's go and it doesn't matter how much time and effort we've put in already. It's a lesson learned. Move on. Get on to the next one. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And I think constraints are not just at a team level, they're at a business level, an enterprise level, and even at a even at a market level with regulators. And some of the decisions that you make are based around good faith. They're based on the assumptions you know at the time. And when those, I suppose, those constraints are no longer there, whether they're tightened or maybe maybe they're relaxed, it's it's up to a really good team to be able to say, actually, the landscape's changed now and if we continue delivering something in the way that we have been actually it's no longer going to hit the mark where we where we need it to yeah. it's going to lead to some actually some in, in some cases some destructive behaviors within the team and i think that brings you back to the initial point that i made to liam if you respect the constraints but you are constantly monitoring and listening to them it's possible to build healthier teams and yeah, it's it's all about that constant feedback cycle and not being afraid to change direction, as you rightly pointed out. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that you mentioned there in terms of the teams and the pivoting is pride. Is pride itself a constraint for a team? I think that's a brilliant question. I think it's a it's a psychological barrier. I think everybody has an element of professional pride. When we create an idea, when we build something, we put a bit of ourselves into it. And I think some of the most rewarding things that I've seen in my time at Sky Betting and Gaming are the new products that we launch. When we launch a new product, because I'm on the inside, I can see the contributions that individual people have made. So when I'm using the products, I can see that one person had this contribution. You can see an echo of another person's idea in the product that ultimately went into the hands of our customers. And that's an incredibly powerful thing, but it's something that needs to be tempered and something that needs to be respected in a way because that pride can also become, as we've said, destructive and being afraid to throw away an idea it's not a bad thing. I think that's an incredibly strong thing for a team. And I think we talk a lot about psychological safety. I mean, it's a bit of a buzzword. Uh, and a lot of teams say that, that they have that concept of psychological safety. But really, really effective teams with that foundation are not afraid to give feedback to each other and say, you love this idea. We want to deliver this idea. But the world's changed. It no longer makes sense to do that. And then for that person to be able to take that on board in a sensitive and an appreciative way and move forward together. How do you build in into your measurement and feedback loop enough time to make sure that the changes you are making work, especially if you've got a goal that is perhaps shorter than that feedback loop or you're partway through a feedback loop? And how, how does that actually pan out in, in real terms? Is that difficult to overcome or am I overthinking it? No, I don't think I don't think you are. I think it, it's always going to be contextual. And we always say that context matters. I think the approach that we take or the teams that I work with take, we like to baseline, we like to give ourselves a time box, whether we're using Scrum or we're in the continuous delivery world of Kanban, we always create a time box. And when we are conducting retrospectives, when we are injecting improvements in, we like to create those improvements and frame them in the form of a hypothesis. We look at how our system of work based on our metrics and our measures, the, the limit of our observability allows us to get to. We say, actually, the system behaves in X way. We believe that if we make this small change, it will behave in Y way and we will know by Z. So we effectively create a hypothesis and we release these into our team and we treat the way that we improve the team in the same way that we treat any other piece of work. Everything has an acceptance criteria. We have a test elaboration and we want to understand when it's done and when it's done, done. And so we release these things into our teams and we look at the before and then we look at the after 
but we're very constrained and I'm going back to the, the word constraint there we're very constrained in the way that we release these things in because we want to be able to measure the impact that they've had now some things have quite a long tail and you can see them running off into into the distance and so we have to effectively leave them in implementation and continue to monitor and validate them but some things are immediate changes that we can make and they have an immediate outcome that we can detect. And those things we release in, but really it comes down to what the team wants to do. What is the most valuable thing for the team to do right now? And then balance that versus short-term and long-term gains and overall measurability. So I've got kind of a, a, a question for Pete, really. How was a, effectively a sole trader, right? how does the theory of constraints affect you how do you cope with it as a sole member of a team it's uh, funnily enough i was going to ask a, a similar question to that in the for very small teams how do you get enough data points to measure against i guess the problem is that most projects are going to take one person longer than it's going to take four people to do simultaneously but you're going to get more data out of four people and then that feedback loop is going to be faster so that was sort of the the question that i was going to ask about that but for a single person that I always try to learn as I go along while I'm doing it. And actually, if it's only you doing it, you can spot those constraints a lot faster. And a lot of the time you're talking about a programmatic solution. So you're going to automate something that would take you longer to do as a single developer. That's most of what I'm going to do. So even if it's down to invoicing, you'll always find an easier way to do that or, you know, just putting Excel macros in or anything like that. But Obviously, there's bigger overreaching things and having a retrospective with the client is something that I had to learn to put in because I wasn't part of a big company that did something like that. And actually organizing clients to think of you as part of the team when you're a consultant is hard in that respect as well. And to be included in that, you don't get the feedback part of that loop at all. So you you get missed out of that learning exercise there. So. The fact they come back to you is about the only feedback you get. And then if you're lucky, you can have a conversation with them at that point. So sometimes that measurement is difficult. I don't measure much at all, mainly because it takes so long to, to put any amount of measurement in. And I'm often too busy to do that. But um, And that was another question I was going to ask Tom is obviously it's that, oh, I forget who it was now, is it Heisenberg's uncertainty principle where you, yes. as soon as you start measuring something, then you affect the whole thing, the whole way it's working. But I guess that only applies the first time you implement something like this. Uh, once you've got measurements in place or you add extra ones, it, you know, it's not going to affect the team as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that goes anywhere towards answering what you're asking me, but it's, it's more and more difficult the less and less people there are involved to do much in the way of learning. And the other problem is that I'm often the only developer on a project. So my measurements are goals and returns and whether I get a customer back again and whether or not the project was successful. So slightly different to a full team that's perhaps in a some form of a cyclical sprint nature, release protocols and things like that. So, yeah. I think you can apply things like theory of constraints and, and just wider constraints to what you've discussed there. If you look at what your goal is, your goal is obviously to, to bring money in and to win contracts. Those are your metrics. But when I'm working with teams, when you look at things like error budgets, you look at SLAs, SLOs, uh, when you look at what behavior those metrics drive, those metrics are constraints. Let's say that I breach my error budget. What's going to be the outcome to that? Well, it's going to change my behavior. As a result of breaching my error budget, I'm going to have to double down on reliability engineering and platform stability. That in, in itself is a constraint. We're measuring it because it is a constraint and it's affecting our behavior. Going back to your example, I think you can apply theory of constraints really well to that, but look at the things that you're measuring. What can you do to shorten that feedback cycle? You, you are waiting for feedback from a client, let's say, and I've been in a situation where I was part of a, a large digital transformation program and one of our biggest constraints was a dependency. It was waiting for feedback from a policy team that was many hundreds of miles away. We knew that that was one of our constraints because it was governing how quickly we could turn around work, how quickly we could get things signed off, get things into delivery and get things through our pipeline. 
So that was one of our governing constraints. It slowed us down, it stopped us from learning. So rather than throw more engineers at the problem, the right thing to do is actually to relax that constraint by bringing that policy person into the team, shortening that feedback loop and accelerating it. And I think if you can look at the constraints around you that are governing your behavior and governing how you operate, and then work on those. So shrinking those feedback cycles, increasing the frequency of them, having more retrospectives more often. I think that type of information is incredibly powerful because it enables you to make decisions quicker. It enables you to pivot quicker and it enables you to build a better product in my experience. But it's very difficult to get hold of people's time because time is a constraint. I teach an agile boot camp on, on a regular basis and I've got a grandiose kind of metaphor that I use with teams when we're talking about feedback and we're talking about how we are constrained in the things that we build. We can't build everything to our heart's content. And the way I try to frame it is along the lines of, and, and this is a bit of a mouthful, so I, I'll give you a time to think about it. We say that whilst the tapestry of the mind is infinite, cost and time remain finite. So there's these constraints that exist around us. We can do what we want. We can build what we want these days. But really, there are some really powerful governing constraints and that helps us to focus on the things that are most valuable. Those two are my biggest constraints. Cost and time, generally. And, and if a client asks me for something, I very rarely will say no. The constraints are how long it's going to take and how much I'm going to charge. And you're right. I think there's a whole heap of personal constraints for me, it probably affect people a little bit more, uh, me more than other people, maybe. But do you apply those constraints to, to individual people as well? Do you look at what people are constrained by, albeit their amount of time, but also their knowledge, or maybe even the fact that, you know, you, you could be on paternity or maternity leave and say so that's going to affect how you are, or maybe you're trying to overcome an illness. There's quite a lot that you could drill down all the way to the detail to try and improve a team. And I guess you have to stop. I think... I think data is incredibly powerful, but it's also incredibly dangerous in the places that it can take you. You know, the data, the numbers, the metrics, the data points, those exist around a person, but they are not that person. We live in the age of the quantified self now. I've got my Fitbit and I wear it everywhere I go. And Google is tracking me and my location and it's helpful, but I am more than those data points. I'm richer than that. And the same thing applies to team members, data helps you to ask interesting questions, but it's people that help you to answer those questions. And I think really good teams are not afraid to follow the data, but then when they get an answer, know when to be sensitive to that, how to support that team member and how to, to help them improve their throughput or how to find a better way of working for that team member because lone working may not be working for them right now. A lot of people are working remotely. I know a lot of people find it absolutely brilliant. Their utilization and their individual metrics and focus has shot through the roof. But collaboration, maybe rework, redo work, those things are starting to creep up. I was talking to a community of practice last week and it was really interesting to hear from them how some metrics are taken us in the right direction and then other metrics are being ignored almost the wrong metrics really we should be measuring ourselves not in the metrics that surround how a team operates those are secondary metrics the real metric for a successful team and successful delivery in my opinion is the impact that that product has everything else is secondary to that everything else just helps you along the way to that end goal i was thinking about how this might apply to pete to a uh, soul one man band there and i think for me the, the whole thing here was introduced with tom saying that he uh, uses theory of constraints as a way to build a better team which is a brilliant way of looking at it i've always looked at it as a way to build a better process and i really like this idea of actually you know forget the process it's, it's all about the people right that's where it always comes down to people process tools and people is by far the number one of those things but when you only have the one person maybe you do want to be looking at the process and it's, it's kind of what we've already said when you're looking for that bottleneck the thing that's holding it up maybe that's where you want to concentrate on metrics but it may well be that in your case Pete 
you don't really need to do detailed measurements. It might be blatantly obvious what the thing that's holding you up is. Your, your bottleneck might be very, very obvious, and hence, well, I'm going to automate that. And if you're taking a manual process and automating it, the improvement is probably big enough that you don't need exact measurements to know, oh, well, we've improved it by 90%. It doesn't matter whether it was 70% or 99%. It's a damn sight better than it was, and you'll now be able to see pretty obviously whether it's still a bottleneck and you want to make it less of a bottleneck or whether actually your bottleneck's moved to somewhere else. I guess, though, make sure you are being sure you're working on your bottlenecks and not just on the things that are easily automatable. Or, or the fun things. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because often, as, as Tom said, often the bottlenecks are people and they're always the thing that it's easy to avoid because nobody wants to have the hard conversations and sometimes that's just what you need to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have that. I'm essentially part of a team of people when I'm working for other companies. So I become part of that team and I try to iron out uh, where I'm going to get blocked, essentially, and, and work those bottlenecks out. So you're right, if I can get information from people in a better way or, or faster, then that, that unblocks me in that way. So I do go through that. That just leads me very nicely onto the point that I wanted to make. <laughs> very good segue. Segway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just going to say, like, um, have you had any experience and have any ways to deal with any constraints that are beyond your control? E.g. for a company, that you, a, a client that you're working for or something like that. So I think from my perspective, when I've seen this done really well, and I'll go back to the previous example that I used about the large digital program. Maybe a couple of years ago, we were working at quite a large team, actually, about maybe about 40 of us. We were working on a large digital transformation and process and policy were separated. So we had the concept of a product owner, somebody that was embedded within our squads, and that worked absolutely fantastically for us decisions got made in real time because I always say that, you know, product owners are deciders. They are making decisions in real time. And the fact that they are in the team gives them that context so they can make an informed decision on a almost minute by minute basis based on the chatter and the intelligence that they're getting. But then the challenge that we started to see was that policy was divorced from product and it was held by another person, somebody else uh, effectively held control of policy. So what we had to do is we had to work out how can we accelerate this? How can we make this go faster? And the best way to do that was almost to track the, the cycle time of how long it takes to make a policy decision. So with everything else that we do, with it like empiricism, we decided to make that visible. So all of our decisions that we were making, we put them into our backlog and we ran them down like any other piece of work, moved them through our pipeline. And we were able to identify what areas were blocked, what areas were waiting on ourselves. But the really interesting thing about identifying decisions, especially around policy, was it enabled us to track that time. And after three or four weeks, go back to the governance of that team and of, of that program and say, we're going quickly, but we could go really quickly because we know for a fact that it takes us 21 days for us to send a request away and for somebody to come back and say, maybe which is not a good place to be at. And so what we did with our team was we, we canvassed our kind of like our program board as it was back then and said, we need what we call policy owners in teams, hmm. people that are empowered to make policy decisions, not somebody that is sat a couple of uh, buildings away, a couple of hundred mi of miles away, but we need somebody that's embedded within that team so we can shorten that feedback loop and once we were able to acquire those people and build them into our teams, the speed at which we move was unheard of in the area in which we were working. We went down from 21 days to make a decision to two days, which Impressive. was absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And that, that was our biggest constraint. I mean, there were other ways that we could have gone faster, but it was about unpicking, as Louise has said, the most difficult constraints and chasing them down and not being afraid to have those conversations. Hmm. Process automation is easy people people are oh. interesting I like, that... I like to say interesting <laughs> <laughs> call a spade a spade <laughs> fair play that's um that's pretty impressive going it sounds like they were really cooperative and like really wanted to drive forward and, and 
have that kind of cooperative relationship have like I'm, I'm just I'm just playing devil's advocate really what about when they don't want to do anything about it <laughs> like is that should you try and work around like a bottleneck or a constraint um are there any you know kind of better ways to do that than others um because sometimes people just flat out refuse <laughs> yeah yeah I'd say that's where it comes to Tom's point of making it visible so people might refuse to do it but you can at least make it really really clear that that part of the process or that team or that person is the one that is using the time up and eventually the pressure will be there to try and fix it I've I've got some specific examples in my mind <laughs> I guess that do I don't share. work in software <laughs> I can't, well um I will not name names but like yeah I've I'm a recruiter, so I have a very different kind of background to, to the rest of you, although I recruit for tech. So, you know, it's it. I understand all this kind of stuff. And especially on these kind of episodes, I, I find it really quite interesting and enjoyable to apply the topic that we're talking about to my industry. And that's why I was kind of like going down that line of questioning with you, Tom, because I work with a product <laughs> that is a person and I am trying to essentially sell that to a client. The client is looking for a service from me but because of the nature of the industry all of the nuances with it it's quite often the case that they have certain ideas and they you can show them the constraint you can tell them about it you can tell them how this particular thing if you change it then you know productivity will be higher and they either don't care or they ignore you or both sometimes <laughs> so yeah that's the kind of route that I was going down and I was just wondering yeah if there's like a kind of work around it but I guess sometimes you just have to know when to stop don't you <laughs> I think everything has a limit that you can expose a constraint and expose a problem yeah. to in that kind of way so I suppose if you look at the pipeline if you look at a process you can also start to see constraints not just in the pipeline and process but in the work itself the work itself sometimes has constraints around it. Some work is incredibly volatile. Some yeah. work decays in value, it becomes toxic, and so it needs to be dealt with. It's the hot potato. So the longer you put something off, the more dangerous something gets. Let's talk about things like security. You know, security and compliance, those types of things, those things are important. They're a standard in the products yeah. and the services that we offer. If issues and challenges around those are not addressed quickly, the decay rate and the speed at which that decays is actually quite quick. It becomes toxic, it becomes the hot potato, and then you ultimately have to deal with it. You have yeah. to either jump on that because there is no alternative there. Mm. Uh, and then that creates a lot of debt. It creates anti-work, it creates disruption around it. You start to see teams drop out of that state mm. of flow to just run towards this thing that suddenly exploded. Yeah. And I think going back to your point, there has to be a, a stage where you actually say, there's only so much I can push yeah. before yeah. You, you hit that limit. But then I'll be framing that question with the other party and saying, okay, well, how much does this hurt you not to have this? It's the whole cost of delay yeah. challenge. If you've created a product, if you've got some constraints, you're meeting those constraints, but actually, that customer is not taking on board that product. It may well be that their need has changed and that hasn't been communicated to you. So shrink your feedback loops, talk to them on a more frequent basis, mm. or ask yourself or ask the business, the product owner, the, the recipient of that product, what is the cost of us not delivering this? How much is this harming your business? And if that is not particularly high, then that can be stretched on forever and ever. Mm. Or if it's something that's going to effectively become toxic and explode, then yes, people will then hop on that. And when I work with teams, what I tend to do is we tend to look at the way that the work decays. We look for the highly volatile work and where we sometimes jump on things when it starts to become toxic. Those are hidden constraints. We don't call them constraints. They don't usually attract deadlines. But those pieces mm. of work, when pieces of work go out of their SLA, area budgets are breached, a high number of security vulnerabilities are found, a product is no longer adding value that's when we suddenly jump on something and these things are also constraints so when we put in teams together and we're structuring teams how they want to work whether it's in kanban or whether it's using scrum or any other framework we spend a lot of time and i spend a lot of time looking at what are those draws for the team those yeah. 
bits of toxic work that draw our attention because those are the real constraints that exist and everything else can flow around them because if you don't deal with them quickly and promptly then they can just go off yeah fair play thank you that was really insightful jonathan it sounds like you're able to bring order from chaos with the theory of constraints and and try and bring some structure mm. to it but is there a danger of extracting the humanity out of the process and making it too mechanized? And how do you take that temperature of that and manage that? I think it's a balancing act. And I think it's where that team is on its journey to a, a DevOps utopia or an agile utopia. Usually when I start working with teams, I will collect a lot of information, but I won't make it advertised. I won't make it visible to people because going back to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, as I'm starting to record information, people are going to become aware of it. It's going to naturally change their behavior. So I try to put people at the center of everything that I'm doing. What I won't be doing is I won't be forcing metrics on people. I won't be publishing things unnecessarily. I'll be asking questions. And when people are interested in those questions and probing a bit deeper, at that stage, I might reveal some metrics that I have. And it may well be that, that that person or that group of people look at those metrics and say, actually, those are superficial metrics. They're vanity metrics. They don't tell you exactly what's going off within that team. Something far more fundamental and human is happening there. Because metrics don't give you an idea of interactions that are taking place. They are the afterthought. The best way to think of metrics in almost like a system of work is it's almost looking at the particles in you know, the exhaust of a vehicle. You're looking at the after event. You can infer what might be happening in that engine, but it's only by getting in that team, living with that team, and asking them questions that you can actually see what's really going off. My next sort of question slash, slash point is really aimed at Louise, who has worked across a number of different industries and different flavours of team and different types of development. When you've been in a more tightly regulated industry, I guess, like when uh, you used to work in aerospace, what kind of impact did that have on team throughput and how did you deal with it? We had some interesting challenges when we moved to a, an agile way of working, but that was largely because of the processes that were in place that we needed to have certain gates to pass through. The theory of constraints, though, is one of the things we can use to help us figure out how long those gates take and how much effort they add. And if we want to do things faster, where can we improve that? How do we make it faster when we're going from something that we're used to having three months, six months release cycle? How do you do that when you want a two week cycle? When your process says you have to start with writing a full on requirement spec and then you need a design spec and all of these need to be signed off at separate gates before you even think about starting to code anything. And then that needs to pass a gate before you go into testing. We were able to use, I don't think we knew, knew we were using theory of constraints, we're using a lot of the techniques we're talking about to work out where the things were that were taking time and how do we change how we do that in order to, to make it faster. And largely we were able to do that very quickly and still having more formal gates at a, a longer time period. I think that's really interesting because in highly regulated spaces, you, you have constraints and sometimes those constraints are real, but then sometimes they're often imagined. It's just that you are so far away from that constraint that sometimes you can mistake it for a gateway. And I think one of the things that I've, I've found that works really well is get as close to a constraint as possible, surface it, understand it, because it may well be that you can unpick it, you can break it down into things that are smaller component parts. You can then accelerate some of those decisions that are being made. And I think taking your example, but then going to the exact opposite of that, in spaces that are about fast failure, fast learning innovation, you can do some really interesting things. And I've seen some really interesting things done around innovation constraints and uh, something called innovation throttling. So we often talk about having policies in place. So when we move things between different statuses on our Kanban boards or our task boards, things have to meet a certain criteria. But one of the really interesting things that I've seen done and we've started to do within one of our squads at, at Sky Betting and Gaming is killing off our backlogs. Backlogs become very stale over a period of time. And if you want to work in an area 
that is highly innovative, where we're constantly trying to meet the needs of our internal stakeholders and our, our external customers. One of the techniques I've seen working quite well is to effectively slice your backlogs, cut them down, make them as small as humanly possible, get rid of stale things from those backlogs, because what that does is it forces the most innovative ideas to the surface. The most recent, the newest ideas, those ideas that pick up on information in almost real time. And I've seen some teams become totally beholden to their backlogs, backlogs that are thousands and thousands of items longer. And that takes time. It, it has a cost for maintaining and managing. And if you look at things from uh, Little's Law and, and queuing theory, the bigger your backlogs are, the longer you're going to spend maintaining and managing them. But time is a constraint as well. So think about what you could do with all of that extra time where you could spend it on innovation, zooming in on the things that are most recent and doing the things that have the biggest impact right now. We've gone past the point of my question, but I don't mind. I'm not, I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'll bring it back. When we're talking about introducing measurement into a team or adding more measurements into a team, and then the obvious end result of that will be reports. Somebody will make a report. There will be something written down on paper. How do you stop that data being used either nefariously, which would be terrible, or just badly by maybe badly informed or badly trained management who use it as an excuse to perhaps victimize members of staff that they think are bottlenecks and the data shows their bottlenecks, but really the bottleneck isn't their fault. There's some underlying data in there that's missing or being misrepresented. How do you make sure that data is clean and presented correctly? I think it comes down to the interpretation. I think data is incredibly powerful, but the one thing that's more powerful is the narrative. And if I present you with a data set, you could probably come up with any narrative to fit that data set. And the narrative is the powerful thing. That's the thing that sticks with us. And data is true. Data is, is as objective as we can make it, but narratives travel, they travel quickly. So I think the key thing is about making sure that the team is comfortable with the, with the metrics that have been provided that echo how it's operating. Making sure that the team knows the narrative around that, how cause and effect link together, and then making sure that when we present that information to, to leaders and business executive decision makers, they're able to fully interpret that information in the right way with that narrative. So we've got that causality. We've got this thing results in that thing that will then go on to trigger the next thing. And then a recommendation on what we recommend to do next and then how we'll see that change take place. What we expect to see. Do we expect to see throughput go up? Do we expect to see it stabilise? Or is it going to tail off? I think one of the sort of intricacies in there could be that you could have a very hardworking member of staff who's also a bottleneck. And unless those two things are clearly presented, if you're going in for a review and all you've got is the data that says, my data says you're the bottleneck, I'm not going to give you your raise or promotion. How do, how do you tie this sort of HR data into the raw figures that don't lie, but don't necessarily reflect the truth? Well, I think... If you go back to the Phoenix Project, and there is one key character in the Phoenix Project, and it's Brent. And everybody loves Brent, because when Brent goes on holiday, nothing happens. But that's to say that Brent can go on holiday, but he can't, because nothing happens unless Brent goes on holiday. <laughs> and it's, and I, I've been in that situation before, and the reason I really empathise with that is because I am Brent. And I have been Brent before. And I think if you're in a supportive team... There is nothing to fear from feedback. We look for bottlenecks. We have continuous retrospectives. If something happens and there wasn't a good enough handover, if there wasn't resiliency in the team, if we don't have that knowledge sharing and resiliency in place, then we should have a conversation about it. And we should do something about it. And teams that have that basis of psychological safety are not afraid to have those conversations and say, actually, I'm not here to take your job. I'm here to make your life easy so you can go on holiday, so we can keep delivering continuously. And I think that's the key thing here. It's not, and, and you mentioned the HR conversation. How do you join together HR with the metrics? I, I would prefer for that to be surfaced, not by HR. That is a conversation that needs to live within the team. It may well be that something becomes escalated at some stage, but that is the last point that we want it to get to. 
And I think that's where building sensitive teams, building teams with psychological safety that have got strong values, behaviors, and a mutual respect for each other. That's the environment where you can have those conversations and you can deal with them. The data will lead you there. The data will point it out. But the strong teams are the ones that actually say, we can see this, it's a problem, and this is what we're going to do about it. And nobody's afraid of the outcome. Do you think that maybe, just using your example there, that if you're getting to the point where you're having to involve HR to make sure that these sort of things can happen, something has gone off the rails? Absolutely. I think, you know, teams are made up of people. And at the end of the day, we are building software, we are building products, but it's people that build those things. And that's where we need to spend our time and our investments. If you are contacting HR, then yes, we've gone way too far. We haven't dealt with something, but that's another feedback loop. And it's for teams to recognize that and to say, okay, what can we do better next time? How can we be more sensitive and how can we deliver better? But build a team that is able to deliver in a better way. And you know, there's, there's a really good book and I can't remember the, the chap that, that wrote it, but I think he was the chief finance officer at Apple during Steve Jobs time. And he was absolutely keen on building high-performing teams, taking B players and turning them into A players. But it doesn't matter if you're an A player, if you don't win in the right way. And I think that's critical to teams. If you want to build a high-performing, agile team with a DevOps mindset, the key takeaway, I would say, is to be data-driven, but people-led. Perfect. Okay. Um, I think uh, on that note, it's probably a good point to start looking at uh, takeaways from around the table. Uh, so, Jonathan, let's start with you. I think what's been most interesting and what I've taken away from Tom's talks in the past when I've seen him speak at conferences is that idea that not all metrics need to be shared with the whole team, that whilst transparency and honesty is something that should be rewarded or encouraged in a team, also not distracting people from data that may derail them from what they're trying to achieve at the moment is actually quite key. And the, the clever use of curation in metrics is, I think, a strong message to remind us that the wrong you know that there's three types of lies lies damned lies and statistics and that we need to try and keep people away from being diverted from their true cause by numbers that might not mean something or they may misinterpret themselves so that's my key takeaway from listening to what tom's brought uh louise no, i've got three i think one of them's very similar to jonathan's there um, that the the thing where, where Tom was talking about metrics and saying that actually the the ones we normally focus on about how the team operate and velocity and throughput and all of that sort of thing is actually secondary to the primary purpose of the impact the team has. Uh, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. The, the one I mentioned earlier about looking at theory of constraints not being a way to build a better process but a way to build a better team and I think that one's going to stick with me for a while. I'm going to be thinking about how to apply it in that way. So I really appreciate that. And then, as always, just it's always worth reiterating that when it comes down to it, it's all about the people. And I'm glad that Louise went first. I'd looked down that list and thought, ah, oh, good, Louise is before me because I was pretty sure I was going to steal some of her points. So I'm glad <laughs> that she was able to go first. So I was unable to, to steal that thunder. Uh, but I've got to agree with the people concept in that. I think whatever metrics you surface, I think if you concentrate on those that help the people do their job to the best that they can possibly do it, I think then you're going to be on the right track and then build maybe the metrics around that. But I mean, that's my my sort of paraphrasing of, of the bits I've taken away from tonight, which some teams may not have the, the privilege to be able to do. They, they may not have that level of uh, understanding of the individual members of their team to take that away. So perhaps then you, you have to concentrate on what you can get rather than what you want to get. For me, my takeaways from this episode are that really, yeah, it is, it is about the people, but you, you could quite easily get bogged down in almost false metrics. You know, you're looking for for patterns and reasoning where there really, where there really isn't any, and you've got to be really careful about which things you look at. And even if you're going down the wrong route, is recognizing that as early as possible, and then feeding back on that and and pivoting away from it. Uh, kind of like everything, you know, it, it's it's fail fast and fail often. And that applies to metrics too, as well as those overall constraints. So where you can find out where that line for the constraint really exists. Tom? 
I think my biggest takeaway was was really from Misha's point about how long do you keep going until you almost stop trying to make a difference and you stop trying to accelerate and push something through if that constraint is totally immovable. And I think the really interesting thing that I'll probably go away with from tonight is is really questioning which of those constraints are immovable and which ones are ones that you can work away at, which ones can you break down and get something from to, again, shorten that feedback loop and have an impact. So, yeah, I thought I thought that was a really great question, Misha. Thank you. That's... Oh, I'm blushing. Um, thank you. Yeah, I, I was actually going to say very, very similar to what to, to, to what you said, like the, the kind of sunk cost fallacy, like knowing when to turn around and just say, actually, no, the, 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 it's not worth it at this point. And also knowing when to when to not to give up because that just sounds very defeatist, but, you know, when to walk away from something um, if it's ha like doing more harm than good, because actually by letting go, you can open up yourself for, for something else that could actually add value to your life um, and your team's life. Yeah. As opposed to going after something that is just not, not, not worth it or not going to happen. So yeah, it's given me a really different and, and interesting way of looking at things and yeah, I'm going to do a bit of reflecting, I think and maybe change some things up. So thank you. I think time is probably one of our most precious constraints because where you spend your time and how you invest yeah. it is incredibly important because it's the one thing you can never really claw back. Mm -hmm. So I think really, really good teams are cognizant of that. And I think time is your biggest constraint. So if you're going to do something, make the best decision and really decide where you want to invest your time because it's all about getting the most value from that time and those conversations. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice even for life in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you very much, Tom, for joining us on this episode. Um, it was also Tom's topic suggestion before we uh, invited him to, to join us. And I think that's been a really valuable episode overall and thank you everybody for listening to the agile engineering podcast uh, you can let us know your thoughts on the theory of constraints or even suggest topics for discussion by getting in touch with us on twitter at at agile eng podcast going to our website agileengineeringpodcast.com or you can contribute them directly on our github repository which is at github.com forward slash agile engineering podcast if you like what you've heard in this episode and in all our other episodes you can also support us on patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash agile engineering Thank you.